Y'all ready to rock? Awesome. I'm Chris White, and I wrote and directed a coming-of-age music movie set in a world that, while very real and important to me when I was a teenager, is more on a foreign planet or alternate universe to most people. This past year, we've screened Electric Jesus, a comedy about a group of heavy metal missionaries in the summer of 1986 at dozens of film festivals across the United States. And we're just about to release the film everywhere. Audiences have bonded with the characters and the story, but more than a few have asked questions about the music and the subculture that produced it. So, we thought it'd be fun to pull back the curtain and take you into a world of too small spandex pants, too much hairspray, and lest we forget, Bibles. Electric Jesus, the music behind the movie is your VIP backstage pass into this crazy world. And in the immortal words of Skip Wick, our Christian rock huckster with feet of clay and a bad toupee. The Rock and Roll Road Show. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Episode 6, an academic perspective on the impact of Christian rock with special guest Dr. Leah Payne. John, it's important to me that as we introduce people to this world of Christian music, that we that we try to be as objective as possible about it. You know, obviously, I have made a film about this world uh, that lives in that world and is, you know, pretty comfortable with that world. Um, but I thought it would be cool if we could find somebody who could address it in a more academic way or maybe a more objective or removed way. And I think we found that person with Leah Payne. Oh, absolutely. It's it's amazing to me. If I, I could never imagine that anybody would be thinking about CCM or Christian rock music from an academic perspective. Now there's quite a few people realizing that this was a this was a sociological, theological phenomenon that actually is having the the ripples are being felt both inside the Christian community and outside. So Leah is currently working on a her own book, an academic book about the way Christian music has shaped and influenced the church and the way the church has influenced Christian music. So that's a book that she's working on right now. Um, but she's also written for many publications, Christianity Today and uh, many others. So uh, she's she's very articulate and very well informed, and she brings a, a definitely different perspective. And as a lifer in this weird world, it's it's kind of cool to have smart people taking it seriously <laughs> enough to be analyzing it at this level, I guess. Yes, it is. So let's head into the interview suite with Dr. Leah Payne and see what she has to say about this strange little world. Leah, why did evangelical Christians mid-century, late mid-century to late mid-century, uh, 20th century, why, why did they start making rock and roll music? <laughs> That's such a great question. Well, 
most historians of, of music, uh, rock music, will say that rock music originally was church music. So the, the kinds of sounds that made it, made like created top 40 radio were actually like versions of church sounds that came from the black church and um, then a lot of white holiness and Pentecostal churches. Um, and so I think that um, the idea that rock music is like different from the church was sort of like a later development. <laughs> it was like Southern church music um, that was adapted to um, like a, a bigger like cultural moment. So, um, and I know John's written a lot about this too. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think it's, it's uh, you listen to Sister Rosetta Tharp and you see that Christian rock is the original rock. Right. <laughs> rock and roll starts with Sister Rosetta Tharp. She's one of the innovators of rock and roll, period. And John, you know, that's what we play. We play a live record of hers whenever we do a, a live screen of Electra Jesus. That's the pre-show music. You do? Really? No. Yeah. That's Sister cool. Rosetta. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's just kind of cool. echoing through the hall before the movie That's starts. Great. I love that. Like a so, ghost. Yeah. yeah. But I, I would say, Leah, and you can push back on this if you think I'm overstating it, because I do that once in a while. But um, <laughs> it, it seems to me that uh, the reason so many people so quickly, especially in the South, but not exclusively by any stretch, are able to start saying rock and roll is the devil's music is because they frankly think black people are the devil's people and it's really that simple is that is the the struggles that we see laid over american culture all throughout the last 150 years are about the distribution of power and wealth and chris your question why did christians start making rock music it's like because most people in this country one way or another were christians you know they, they, they were one stripe or another and everybody making rock and roll most of them were whether it was jerry lee lewis or elvis or jimmy swag like they, most of them were christians it was just an understanding of why did some of them leave the culture and start digging a tunnel <laughs> into the ground and hiding in it and then come out later and say oh no we're going now after years of saying we want nothing to do with this this is the devil's music now we're going to come back and we're going to co-opt it because it serves some kind of purpose for us uh that's what happened in the 70s but but in the 50s and 60s it was in the 40s and in the 30s there were people of faith participating in culture like that all the way along, that's been what's happened. All we hear church people say, they are in this holy way. There are strange things happening every day. On that last red judgment day, when they drive them all away, there are strange things happening every day. Every day. Do you think I'm overstating it when I say it's kind of as simple as race, Leah? Well, I certainly think that um, that race and racism and um, conversations about what rock and roll was, you can't tell any story um, about America and not talk about race and racism and white supremacy, especially stories that um, come out of the mid-century 
um, American South. So like a lot of the most popular rock musicians and also like country artists and um, like American pop music, a lot of them were Southern. And um, so in the South was like this site of intense struggle over who counts as a human being and how the U.S. was going to think of itself as a, as a nation. So yeah, I think that the story of rock and roll is a, in a lot of ways, just the, a proxy story for talking about um, the U.S. And, and who we are as a culture. So yes, I think that there's a lot of really crazy quotes that you can find if you, I've looked through a bunch of um, denominational literature in the 1940s and 1950s, um, especially when Elvis became really popular. Elvis was, you know, obviously he's a huge figure, but um, because he was pretty open about being uh, formed by Pentecostal worship services and especially by um, black church services, then he he sort of became like the focal point for those conversations. And they're really weird conversations about how um, rock and roll was like voodoo, which is definitely like you can tell that they're conceiving of it as African-American or like some sort of there's some sort of weird spiritual dimension to it or something like that. So, yes, these conversations are certainly um, wrapped up in in race and racism in the U.S. I got the rock and roll feeling in my soul. You ask me why I'm happy, why I wanna sing and shout. Well, I found a new religion that I couldn't do without the rock and roll. Rock religion and roll. makes rock me and feel roll. just great. Rock and roll, rock, rock and roll. I'm gonna rock and rock shout and his praises all the way to rock the promised land. Well, the industry that grows up in, in, in the maybe the mid to late 70s and then explodes in the 80s with this thing we, we, we call CCM, contemporary Christian music, uh, is, is pretty white. Yeah. Um, and it's also, that's when the, to me, that's when the lyrics start mattering so much. Like what the people are saying, the... The, the poetry that's being spoken and sung, even at its most banal, is still very Jesus-y, very Sunday school safe, very, um, you know, youth group um, devotional. <laughs> where, where did that come from? You know, when did we get from Little Richard to like, you know, basically we're singing uh, songs about Christian, you know, uh, <laughs> morality and, you know, uh, waiting until we get married to have sex. Like what, why would there ever be a rock song about that? Uh, <laughs> why did, would you want that? <laughs> when did that happen? When did we start just making it more about, uh, maybe discipleship or Christian formation or Christian community? That's really interesting. I, so as a historian, I always think there's nothing really new. And maybe that's like, there's there's a Bible verse about that too. Um, and so I think like there's always been Christians and like usually historians call them revivalists who wanted to use media to shape the country, to shape the world. And in their minds to get a vision of 
of what they thought the gospel was out. Now, the, the de definition of that might change over time, but there have always been people who've wanted to use whatever media they had available to them, if they were like old-timey pamphlets that they printed out, um, or if they're, they were radio programs, or eventually if they were like top 40 radio. So I think that the invention of the, the mechanisms of CCM, like just give, it's, it's an opportunity for a certain type of, of Christian who wants to, to use it to create the world, you know, to create a, the, what they imagine to be the best version of the world. So you can kind of use, in my mind, you can use like CCM as a lens for seeing what people cared about in any given era. So like if it was the 80s or the 90s, virginity, <laughs> for whatever reason, you know, um, or it could have been divorce or abortion, you know, like whatever is like some sort of big cultural moment. And so the top sellers end up being an opportunity for you to see, you know, like, oh, okay, this is what people were thinking about. And they were thinking about other things in other eras. Um, like if, if we would have if Top 40 Radio would have existed earlier, then we would have seen things like war bonds and, you know, like the, whatever people were talking about at that time. So um, I think that in some ways it's like inevitable that there are always going to be people who are wanting to to use whatever the hot media product is to, to, to have this conversation. Like right now it's TikTok. There are TikTok evangelists. And so I can imagine that, and I, I'm sure, John, you have so many stories of this, how frustrating it would be if you don't want to have that conversation. I think that it's a pretty clear line when you, if you trace it back to the difference between art and propaganda. When artists are trying to express themselves, they're wrestling with questions, they're, um, they're, they're expressing ideas out in the marketplace of ideas, they're competing with each other, they're engaging the culture, all of that stuff. The market in the Christian bubble really wanted to reinforce that bubble. And the products that, that did that, that had the right language, that reinforced those moral codes, that, that didn't really ask difficult questions that would maybe poke holes in that thing, that was the stuff that did really well. And the artists who started to poke holes in that or ask questions, they were usually kind of left out of that equation. So if you just look at CCM charts, in your mind, are some of them artists and some of them propagandists? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, really? Okay. Okay. Oh, okay, gosh. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've talked to some who literally told me, John, I do not care what kind of music I make. I just want to tell people about the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing at all. I'm not saying that all propaganda is bad. If you believe that the thing that you're promoting is going to save the world, then I, I think that that's, but that is propaganda. And I've heard that more than once. Someone's saying, I don't care about, I had one pretty high level Christian rock icon tell me, I'll do rap, I'll do rock, I'll do heavy metal, I'll do alternative music. Dress me in whatever clothes you want. I don't care. It's all about getting kids to believe in Jesus. On behalf of those imprisoned by the state or locked up by the shame of their own fate, let me tell you. You can be Barabbas, you can be Barabbas, you can be Barabbas too. You can be Barabbas, you can be Barabbas, you can be Barabbas too. You can 
premise to. I have a question for Chris. Okay, so what do you think the band from Electric Jesus, how would you classify them? Are they propagandists or artists? Mm. Oh, I think I think they're um, uh, very earnest and sincere adolescents. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think um, first of all, don't don't judge Three Sixteen by their music in the movie. Uh, it's a memory, and it's played by professionals in a studio. <laughs> they weren't that good. <laughs> um, yeah, Daniel Smith. Uh, we uh, maybe the lyrics were that cheesy. Um, oh, I love but the, the lyrics. Music, <laughs> the music is is next level songcraft that they would not be capable of, and we we tried to write the the music so that we would enjoy hearing it in the movie and listening to it on a record in 2021. So and but and we're playing with this idea of memory and memory. Everything sounds better in the in your memory than it did when it actually happened. So you know, I like I tell people, I don't think that the band was wearing striper costumes. I just think Eric remembers them as striper costumes, like they were gonna make it. Like I don't, I don't think that is literal. That's more of a memory aspect. Um, I think that um, I think every you know part of writing the characters and really making the characters different was everybody's got a different motive for being in the band. So I think I think the band is more of a, a function of Eric's memory, but. To a person, the members of the band, Eric the sound man, even Sarah, who tags along with the band, um, I think they're all very sincere Christian kids uh, to one degree or another that are just trying to sort through this Christian culture that's being kind of placed on top of them. And they're trying to make sense of it um, like good, decent people would. You know, I don't think we have any. Even Sarah, who, um, I, no spoilers for the movie, but Sarah um, makes some choices in the movie that really sets her out on her own. Um, I don't even see her as a rebellious person. I just think of her as a, as a person asking sincere questions and feeling like, um, you know, she's not getting the answers that she needs, um, that sets her out on a path. I will tell you this, Leah, there's... Um, we're doing a trick with the movie where we're making the protagonist who's telling you the story, he's starting to realize in the film that it's not about him. The story he's been telling for 35 years wasn't his story. Mm. He was telling somebody else's story. I've found uh, my wife, for example, I, the moment that really tears up, um, really connects emotionally with a lot of women that see the movie is the last time we see Sarah. And that's a moment where, you know, women, especially if you grew up in Christian communities, get a little lump in their throat and, you know, something resonates. Men, especially men of a certain age who grew up in Christianity, the last scene in the movie, you know, the last shot of the movie is where we get a little, where it gets dusty <laughs> in the theater, as they say. So it's, 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 it's just interesting how that, that dynamic plays out where um, the, the a one character's uh, freedom or one character's exit uh, brings a different kind of power than than one other's uh, kind of realization, recognition of maybe a way they've been not telling the story right, mm. you know. But but the band, I don't know. I don't think the band was that good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think the band is of notes. <laughs> so tonight, 
I've got a thought, um, because I was in bands at that time, and if you were asking my band, were we doing propaganda or making art, I would say yes. Um, because we, I was probably doing both, because a lot of artists, we, we start by um, mimicking the people that we love, you know, and I was fortunately very inspired by artists like you two um, when I was young enough that I could see, but even you two, they rode that line between propaganda for good causes and art. As a young artist, you do it by mimicking. And then as you grow older, you start to get your own legs and you start to figure it out. These kids in the movie, you know, Will they have a chance to do that or not? That's the question of the of the film. But in my life, there definitely had to be a transition. Who am I going to imprint on as a little duckling? Am I going to imprint on Christian rock and CCM stuff? Or am I going to imprint on artists that are... And, and can I find Christian artists who are doing this at a high level and sophisticated? Then I'm going to try and imprint on that. My question for you, Leah, I know that you're talking about the impact of CCM on the church and vice versa. What I wonder is 30, 40 years of this, uh, this kind of parallel universe thing of Christians listening to Christian music of code reinforcement and finding a Christian version of this kind of pop music. What kind of impact do you, are you seeing, do you think Christian rock and CCM music has had on the Christian community writ large? I am still writing right now. So I'm, I'm like in the mid seventies right now in terms of my writing. I mean, I have some ideas, um, but I feel like I should say the way that I think of CCM is not any particular artist, but I'm looking at like who was sold as CCM. So it would include like rockers, like Striper for sure, um, or Petra or any of the rockers, but also, you know, the pop acts. Like, I love that you have Amy Grant in, in um, talked about at least. I don't want to spoil anything. Um, and I love that she's sort of like a, she feels like a guilty pleasure to my ears, like um, in the film. Like, people are sort of embarrassed to admit that they really like her songs. And then also including like the Gaither types because they're all sold as CCM. Um, and so the artist may have hated that. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, I don't want to name any names, but any, any given like Christian metal band wouldn't want to necessarily be told that they were doing the same thing as like any given Southern gospel artist. Um, I, and probably vice versa, right? Like they probably think they're doing different things, but from the experience of the average evangelical in the US, they are experiencing them all at the same time because they're all bought and sold in the same places, you know? So um, I think that, and, and you know, there's like subcultures of fandoms within that. So I'm interested in like how that whole crew shaped evangelicalism. I'll say this, like the fact that the three of us are all sitting here talking about it and we all know that it's important says something if we look at the kinds of networks that were created, like in, in the industry, we can see that there was like taste creation, taste shaping happening. I, I mean, I'm not willing to say that I think it was good or bad or, or that, you know, if it, that, that people are more or less able to make, cause I'm not also not a psychologist, but I think for sure that we can say that there were like certain kinds of visions of the world that were created 
from this industry. Um, like, I really enjoyed even the trailer to Electric Jesus. There's there's a line, and I forget who, which character says it, but basically, like, you could open for Striper or something. Like, isn't that's that's the thing that they want to do, right? And and you can tell, like, you all. I don't know if you had to get permission for this, but there's this awesome picture of Michael Sweet like from the stage and he he looks so glamorous and, and you can just tell that like that's it then you will have achieved there's nothing else in your life that you could achieve right after you after you um so i think that for sure like your your film illustrates that it's creating like appetites and tastes I get the impression that you didn't come to CCM as a complete curiosity. I feel like there's something in your past. There, there are tapes and CDs in cars you drove in the past that were, that were, you liked. And so I want to know three Christian artists, guilty pleasure or not, you feel no guilt about them, the pleasure they give you, and you would go back to them now. So who do you like? I want to know your CCM playlist, three artists. Well, I was raised by Jesus people. So I, and, and my dad did not like what became CCM music. And so he would not let us listen to it in the house when I was a kid. So I, I love, like I grew up on Larry Norman, second chapter of Acts, Keith Green. So if I had to, you know, just like rattle off three, that would be, and then I just, I was a really big nerd. So I was huge into musical theater as a child and as a young adult, which has almost nothing to do, but this is why I love Striper. So I'd have to put Striper on there because the theatrical, like over the top gender bendy stuff is totally musical theater if you think about it. Um, so I'd have to say I have no no guilt at all that I love that kind of hairband stuff. Um, and then, um, yeah, like I kind of tuned out of, of CCM for a long time, grew up in the 90s. So I have to say like actually writing this book and this will bring it back to Electric Jesus. I've come to really enjoy Amy Grant music and I'm not afraid to admit it. Like, because I grew up thinking, my dad just was grumpy and didn't like pop music. So he, you know, but but we could listen to tons of, actually my dad loves Daniel Amos. And um, so anyway, but so that's kind of like, I grew up with a huge gap in my knowledge so um, the stuff that I kind of like, I mean, I was always aware of that stuff. My dad was a pastor. So I was aware of the youth group bands because that's just what was playing in youth group music. But I, I didn't really listen a lot to it. Like I didn't, I didn't know it that much because I would, my rebellion, this is a pathetic rebellion, was to like listen to top 40 music. So I was listening to Nirvana or Foo Fighters or whatever. So I love the Foo Fighters. If I ever met Dave Grohl, I would, die i would die um yeah so so that that um yeah i, I have to take it probably back to jesus music because i just love it i think it's so good i still listen to it i listen to it with my children
I think John, it's I I love that, and and I think we get to that in talking to Leah. That there were some not great things about the uh, Christian music culture. There still are some not great things about the Christian music culture, and I think that was important to me in Electric Jesus that I didn't want to present this. You know, I'm maybe setting the movie in that world. I'm doing a coming of age rock and roll love story, maybe, but. In that world, I I just I didn't ever want to come off as promoting it, if that makes any sense, promoting it. And I right, think right. I love the conversation with Leah in the sense that you get Leah's a cheerful critic, maybe. Yeah, and and I do think that one of the things I'm excited about with a film like this and a story like this is it it's kind of a doorway where there's going to be many people that will come into this and say what like the, this is a, a world that they never heard of and there's a story waiting for them in this world that uh, that they will relate to and enjoy but there are millions of people who have interacted with this world uh, for better or worse um, and many people who are currently contemplating the repercussions of living in a theological cultural bubble for a certain amount of time what what does that do to our ability to discern things what is that you know and some people are jettisoning all of that completely just wholesale rejection of everything and some are clinging very very tenaciously to everything that they have always believed and then some people are somewhere in between those things and and um while your story isn't particularly although you're there is there there's there are characters there's at least one character who who you kind of wonder um where is he out on that you're not actively dealing with that but it does create the space for that conversation to happen after the film is over and that that to me i'm looking forward to having people over to the house and putting a campfire out showing the movie out back and then talking you know and and yeah, great yeah. stories are uh, offer that i think that uh, i love that that leah is having that conversation because i think it's it's important for people inside that community you know what i'm really looking forward to <laughs> is something that will never happen and we're already enough far enough into this podcast for me to want this but i want to go to the christmas party that has all of our guests in it oh okay I mean, you know, like stranger things just have like, happened, man. Stranger things have happened. Ah, it, these are just such cool people, and I would love to see somebody like Leah talking to Glenn Kaiser. I just, you know, like when you yep. start talking to these people, you're just like, oh, they, you know, Daniel Smith yeah. really needs to meet Michael Bloodgood or whatever, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So. All right, well, I'll work on it, and I'll work on Sweet, and who knows, maybe we'll get Amy Grant on the show. That's going to do it for this episode of the Electric Jesus Podcast. For more information about the Electric Jesus Film, visit electricjesusfilm.com and make sure to sign up for the email list, also known as the G's Team. You should also check out the Electric Jesus YouTube channel and Facebook groups for great behind-the-scenes videos, updated information about the film, and more. All links are available on the show notes page. This podcast is produced by myself, John J. Thompson, and Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions and is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Everything on the Electric Jesus podcast is used by permission or under fair use provisions, and with the exception of previously copywritten materials is the intellectual property of Blue Tape Records, LLC, and is protected by U.S. copyright law. Next time on the Electric Jesus podcast, once we had our original songs and score and production, it was time to select a few period songs from the world of CCM to add depth and authenticity to our film story. 
it was time to drop the needle on Electric Jesus. Join us as I talk with our own music supervisor, John J. Thompson, and a bit of a legend, Michael Rowe of the 77s, about some amazing music that never got the attention it deserved. I see no reason that you boys can't be opening for Mylon or Steve Camp or who knows, maybe even Striper by the time school starts back in the fall. 